I tell you, Advent is a season when we sing, but though the wrongs seem off so strong, God is the ruler yet. It's a reminder of, uh, of the fact that this is God's world. And Advent, some of you may not may be new to this, it's a season of the Christian year. It's actually the beginning of the Christian year. Um, when we refocus on our longing for Jesus to come. We look back to when he came 2,000 years ago, and we think about his coming uh, in the future. The word Advent literally means coming, and it's a way of looking back and forward to prepare ourselves to live today. We believe that in the coming of Jesus, the incarnation, that the whole fabric of reality changed. Everything changed when Jesus came, because he came, and, and that the world would never be the same again. So we take this time to, to prepare, to celebrate. Uh, the world blows by Christmas in two and a half days, if they're lucky. But what we want to do is build to it and celebrate the gift that it is. So, um, as funny as it sounds to do that, we're going to go to the book of Zechariah. And you're like, what? Where is that? Well, if you go, it's the second to the last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah uh, is one of the prophets. We're following our lectionary. Every four years we come around, and this is the hardest one for me at Christmas time because we do John. If you've ever read John, John doesn't have a really good Christmas story. I mean, it, the, he tells the whole story, but he doesn't have the manger in it at all. And Zechariah is the lead up to that. But I think if, if, if you'll hang with me, you're going to see that as we work through Zechariah over the next four weeks of Advent, it's going to take us right to the manger in a very different way than we've gone before. But we'll get there. If you're reading along with our lectionary guide, you're going to be reading Zechariah 1 to 7 in the coming week. <laughs> And man, is it a really interesting thing to read. There, it's, it's, it's actually, well, I'll get into that. Let me, let me just say this. Zechariah is a minor prophet, but with a major message. Minor, not because he was inconsequential. Minor because the book is shorter. But he definitely has a major message. And so in Zechariah chapter 1, uh, we're going to read starting, we're going to read in three different sections today, but we're going to read starting chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo. The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your forefathers to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your forefathers now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your forefathers? And then they repented and said, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve just as he determined to do. This is kind of an introduction to the whole book. He's, it, it, there's been a history. There's been a thing that, that's gone on before. And it's not been a great story. What's happened in Israel when Zechariah gets up to, to prophesy, there's not been a great, lovely section of history. It start, if, just to give you some context, in verse 1 it says, In the eighth month of the second year of Darius... Now, Darius is not a king in Israel. He's the king of the Persians. This would be kind of like getting up to give a sermon in the United States and saying, in the 12th year of the presidency of Vladimir Putin, right? 
In the United States, that wouldn't be. Why would you, why would you anchor your history in Vladimir Putin if you're, a, if you're an American? Well, that's what's happening here. He's getting up to speak to the Jewish people, and he's saying, okay, look, guys, our history has is, is been anchored by a king in Persia. The people have turned away from God, and now in this first passage, you see they've had the history, they've turned away, but now they've repented, and they've come back. And to understand this minor prophet with a major message, you've got to begin where we should always begin when we read these prophetic books, because they're kind of out there. We should look at the context of the book. Uh, the people have just come back, at least a group have, from an exile in Babylon. They've been taken from Israel uh, away to Babylon. Uh, Jeremiah prophesied about it in Jeremiah 25. The whole country, he said, will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So he said years before, you're going to leave your homeland. And Babylon came in and did everything. They destroyed the temple. They, they broke it down. They broke down the walls. They took captives all the way back to Babylon. And these people have lived in exile for 70 years. 70 years is a long time. But it was a limited time. There was some hope even in that. Jeremiah would say later on, um, I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were before, says the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says, in this place desolate, which he's just called, it's going to be desolate, and without men and animals, in all its towns there will again be pastures for shepherds to flock, rest their flocks. In the towns of the hill country of the western foothills and of the Negev in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, flocks will again pass under the hand of the one who counts them, says the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. So for 70 years they have waited to come home. How many of you have waited 70 years for something? <laughs> 70 years? 70 years is a long time to wait for anything, right? Uh, and, and, and we need to actually go beyond just reading a text and trying to understand it to actually feeling what it would have been like to wait for 70 years to go home. Right? How many of you have ever had a medical situation that caused you a little turmoil and you had to wait for test results? Right? How did that feel? Now imagine that feeling for 70 years. Imagine, like if, you've got, if you're in your 30s, imagine you know it's, the prophecy was it's going to last 70 years. You're never going home again. Your kids may. Just imagine the length of that time. And, and, and now they've come home, and we read in Ezra that when they came home, they started to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. They started to rebuild the temple. Ezra says, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, our guy, the prophet, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And then Zerubbabel and Jeshua, son of Jehoshaphat, set to work rebuilding the house of God in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them. So into this context, that's this book, Zechariah, They've come home after 70 years of being exiled far away. Everything's wiped out and they're just starting again. And what we're going to read in Zechariah is a series of eight dreams or visions and they are weird. This guy ate something really weird. You would think if he, if he was telling you his dreams because there's some of them that are pretty far out. There, there, there are... Birds with big wings flying. There's all kinds of amazing things in these dreams or visions. But in verse 1 it says, In this time, when they've come home, they're back. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah. And it's important to realize as we look at these chapters 1 to 6 and these eight dreams that there is a structure of the dreams. Okay, I'm, doing, I'm giving you a lot of background stuff so that when you read it, you won't be confused. 
you have to realize that we, in our culture, have implicit ways, implicit literary structures, things we do, things that we don't really think about, but, but they, we know them because we've grown up in this culture, right? When you turn on a Hallmark movie and you see the guy and you see the girl, do you think they're going to get together? But their lives are so different. Their personalities are like opposite. And there's this point, like 15 minutes before it's over, where it looks like nothing's ever... But they're going to get... We know that. I mean, that's a simple thing. You don't have to wonder. That's one of the reasons people like Hallmark movies, right? In an unpredictable world, the guy's going to get... The, they're, going to, they're going to get together in this movie. That's one of the things we have. Let me show you a picture. Who's the bad guy in that picture? The black hat. Now, who told you growing up that the bad guy always wears the black hat? Nobody told you that. We just learned that in our culture, and it's changing some now, right? But, but we learn that there are, there are things when we read, when we see movies, when we watch stories, there are things that are implicit in our thinking that we just know. If you're sitting in a movie and you hear this audio clip, just listen. coming. These guys have never seen Jaws. Right? Now, that's good for the audio. We can pull it down. But let me ask you this. Is it building to the kissing scene of the movie? No, it's not, right? We know that because every movie has that soundtrack that you know something's going to happen. It's the time, you know, that the guy and the girl are on their first date and the guy thinks, maybe she's going to reach over and grab my hand now because I'm, you know, whatever. There, we have these things in our culture, in the way we read, in the way we watch TV, that we just know. Well, the Jews had those kind of things too. And there was a literary structure in the way Jewish writing happened called a chiastic structure. Now, when we want to prove a point in our way of writing, we typically start... Sometimes we'll tell you the point we're going to prove, and then we say, okay, look at this, look at this, look at this, look at this, and here's the proof. Here's my argument, and here's the proof. It's at the end. We're very linear. We start, we make our case, and here it is. The Jews did it differently. They would kind of go in, make their point, and then back back out. And there's eight dreams and visions of Zechariah that form a chiastic structure. There's a little video clip that'll help you see that. We're going to look at dream one. Then there's dream two, dream three, dream four, and then dream five, six, seven, and eight. And the thing about these dreams is they link up. Dream one and dream eight are very similar. Dream two and dream seven, dream three and dream six. And they do that to build to the middle, which is where the heart of the message comes. So what we're going to do is today we're going to look at dream one and eight and next week two and seven and the next week three and six. Oh, I'm getting hard. I got Oh, and you took it down and four and or three and four and five in the, at the end. And that's the heart of what this, this whole section of Zechariah is saying. Now, we wouldn't pick up on that because we would read dream one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. OK, eight is the big one. No, no, no. Four and five are the big ones. So we're going to build to that. We're going to follow this structure. So today uh, we're, we're going to look at. What Zechariah is dreaming of, and it is not a white Christmas, right? But, but we'll, we'll read the, the first dream and the last dream, or the first vision and the last vision. First one is in chapter 1 
verses 7 to 17. On the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, there's that again, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, and during the night, he says, I had a vision. And there before me was a man riding a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine, and behind him were red, brown, and white horses. And I asked him, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who was talking to me answered, I will show you what they are. And then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, they are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, we've gone throughout the earth and we found the whole world at rest and in peace. And then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have been so... which you have been so angry with these 70 years. So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. And then the angel who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they added to the calamity. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt. And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. And proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says, My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Now that's the first vision. Now flip over to chapter 6. And we're going to read verses 1 to 8 of chapter 6. And you'll hear, there's some similarities. This is the last vision. Chapter 6, verse 1. I looked up again. And there before me were four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black, the third white, and the fourth dappled, all of them powerful. And I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these, my Lord? Same question in the first vision. And the angel answered me, these are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. The one with the black horses is going toward the north country. The one with the white horses toward the west and the one with the dappled horses toward the south. When the powerful horses went out, they were straining to go throughout the earth. And he said, go throughout the earth. So they went throughout the earth. And then he called to me, look, those going toward the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. So Zechariah's vision, start and end, there's, there's this idea of peace for Jerusalem in the first one, and there's this idea of the Spirit being resting at the end of the, of the last one, right? The problem is, and this is what you've got to get, they don't feel that yet. They're just back. Jerusalem is not rebuilt. The temple's getting started, but it's not going very well. But let's look at the two dreams and just see what they say together. First, first we see in both dreams, here come the horses, Right? In chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, what are these? There's four horses. There's different colors. Uh, They've been patrolling all throughout the earth. I mean, there's lots of symbolism in here. And and I would love to be able to just lay it all out to you, but everybody's got a different opinion. And, And I think, you know, the symbolism of the colors of the horses really isn't the thing you need to apply to your life today. The thing we need to, to realize is look at the big picture of what's going on. But they've been patrolling the earth And it says they've been through the whole earth and the earth seems at rest. But the the angel of the Lord says then to, to, to the Lord, why then, if the earth is at rest, why is all this bad stuff happening to Jerusalem? And and God says, right? Uh, You know, 70 years you've been oppressed in Babylon, but now you're coming home. 
Now, if you look at the last vision in chapter 6, you have four chariots with horses. You have the same question. I said to the Lord, what are these, my Lord? I said to the man, what are these, my Lord? And, and in that one, it's spirits who've been going throughout the earth, right? There's this idea of these horses covering the whole land in both the first and the second. And in both those dreams, we see the second part, that God has intervened. Something has happened. The angel of the Lord in the first one, chapter, 10, chapter 1, verses 10 to 15, says, How long, Lord, will you, will, why, why, if the whole earth is at rest, have you been so hard on Jerusalem? Look at it. How long before you let that peace that's all over the world that your horses have seen and the riders have seen it, how long before you let it come here? How long before you do what I promised? And in 114, God says, I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, and I'm very angry with the other nations. You see, the tables have turned. That's what's happening in the first dream. The tables have turned, whereas God has been punishing Jerusalem and sending them in exile. Now he's, he's bringing them home. In chapter 6, it says the spirits of heaven, these chariots are moving all around. And the one with the black horses is going toward the north. Now, the thing you've got to realize about that, every single time that Israel uh, struggled, very often the, the, the army came from the north. The north was an idea of this is the place. In fact, to go to Babylon, they actually went north and across to Babylon. And so there's this idea that the, the black chariot is going to deal with the issue. God has stepped in. And God has intervened. In other words, the promise is coming. Back in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, there's actually six phrases of good news in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. All six of those phrases in the Hebrew verbatim are picked up from things Jeremiah and Ezekiel said before the, before the exile and during the exile. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy. That Hebrew phrase is in the prophecy of Jeremiah. There my house will be rebuilt. And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, meaning it's going to be rebuilt. My towns will again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Those, all those phrases, those six phrases, have been talked about before the exile and during the exile as a promise of God. And here they're all echoed in this vision. And in chapter 6, verse 8, look like that chariot going to the north is going to deal with the problem. The promise is, is going to come, right? The place of turmoil, he says in the, in the last vision, has been so difficult for you and it's going to be put to rest. It's good news, right? <laughs> Here's the kicker. And this is why it's so important to talk about this stuff at Advent. You still with me? You hanging around? Yeah, kind of? Some of you are having your own dreams, right? Write a book about it. Maybe one day. We'll see. Um, all this is good, right? God has intervened. There's this promise that we're longing for. The question is, when? The question is, when? If you read the book of Ezra, when they start rebuilding the temple, the people are really excited, except for the people who saw the old temple. And they're so discouraged because they realize that the new temple is nothing compared to the old temple. In fact, it says that the people that were screaming so loud in, ex in excitement because the new temple was being built were almost drowned out by the people who were mourning because of what a, what a, what a sham this is compared to what we used to. It's not looking... The, the dreams say, yeah, it's good, the promise is coming, but everybody hearing this has to say, when? 
How many of you have had great hopes for something that didn't go the way you thought it would go? How many of you have, have I mean, you come to, into a relationship with God and you just think my life is going to be easy from here on out. It's, God's on my side now. He's in my corner. And it, it just doesn't necessarily always play out the way we think it's going to play out. You know, they're back in the promised land. They've come home, but it just doesn't look like they thought it would. And, and Zechariah's having visions of peace and prosperity and rebuilding, but it, it's just not happening yet. Have, have you ever felt that way? Just, just where you, you had these dreams for what might happen, what God might do, the way God was going to be with you, and it just didn't turn out the way you thought it would. Listen to Psalm 13. I love this psalm. And maybe if, if you felt that way and you're weighed down by what you're longing for, just, just listen to this as a prayer. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. Realize there, the psalmist doesn't pray, I trust in your unfailing solution. I trust in your unfailing solving my problem. He says, I trust in your unfailing love, and my heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord for he has been good for me. See, if that prayer resonates with you, then you understand why this first week of Advent, we always spend time lighting the candle of hope. We light candles every week at Advent, and it's a small practice, um, but it's a powerful one. You know, we think it's cute. The kids come over, they do a reading, they light the candle. Yeah, isn't that cute? It, it's, it's bigger than that. <laughs> It, it's a declaration of trust. What we are saying when we light that candle of hope is we're saying we live in a really dark world. Did you hear Jake's prayer today? It's, it's a dark world. But what we do is we say there's hope. We light a candle in the midst of this darkness to know and declare with confidence that the darkness will not win. Psalm 18, 28 says, You, O Lord, keep my lamp burning. How many of you feel like your lamp is just... You, O oh Lord, keep my lamp burning, and my God turns my darkness into light. You see, what's happening in Zechariah gives us a model for how we are to live our life, and we have to start in those moments of struggle. Now, if you're not having struggles, I'm sorry, I've just been, a, this is a downer of a sermon. If your life is just great, great. I've met enough of you to know there are struggles, right? And how do we deal with that? How do we live in a world looking for the hope of the future and yet feeling the pain of the present? Well, we start... According to Zechariah, according to the scripture, we start by acknowledging our longing. There's been a tendency in the evangelical Protestant church to ignore our longing for things to be better, to suppress it, to deny it. We feel somehow that if you say your frustration, if, you, if you're honest about the way you feel, that somehow you're saying, I don't trust God. That's not what we see in scripture. The Psalms are full of longing prayers. And let me ask you this, those of you that are parents, when your child comes to you needy, afraid, longing, whatever, and they actually express that to you, 
are, are you frustrated with your child or is there a bond there that happens when they come to you? I, I just, I remember, you know, being afraid and my dad, who was this larger than life figure in my mind, would say, son, do you ever think I'd bring you to a place where you wouldn't be safe? I just remember, oh, and there was this connection. I don't think my dad got mad at me for being afraid. It was a chance for him to reiterate the truth of his care for me. And what we do, sometimes we, when we feel this longing, we think, I can't say that. I can't express that. I can't pray it to God. We're avoiding the opportunity for God to say, I love you in spite of that. I've got you. I'm going to carry you because we're afraid to say what we actually feel. Psalm 10 17, you hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry. See, the Psalms give us permission to acknowledge our longing. Psalm 38, I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. All my longings lie open before you, O Lord. My sighing is not hidden for you, from, from you. My heart pounds, my strength fails me. Even the light has gone from my eyes. You see, one of the reasons I think it's important that we learn to acknowledge our longing is there's something powerful about when you do it. When we say what we feel, it brings it out into the light and it gives us a hunger for the resolution. Uh, ex- expressing our longing actually cultivates in us a desire, a deeper desire for the longing to be fulfilled. When we press it down, we don't even acknowledge it, it just eats at us. When we say it out loud, we're bringing it to God, we're actually offering it to Him, and it's helping, it will help us learn in believing what we can't yet see. That's, that's the key to the life of faith. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a desire to see something here different than what we do see right now. We, we want to believe the truth of what we can't yet see. And part of that is that acknowledging what we're actually feeling. We see a broken world. We see the promises of God in the middle of this broken world. And we say, when, how long is it going to be? My favorite passage about this issue is Hebrews 2, 8 and 9. I love this. It says, in putting everything under him, Jesus, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. Isn't that the truth? In putting everything under his feet, it says, God left nothing that's not under the control of Jesus. But we yet, yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. And then the next phrase says, but we see Jesus. And that's what it comes back to. In this moment, we express our longing. We want to believe the truth that we can't yet see. And all we really see is Jesus, that somehow he can meet us here. And that's the essence of faith. Hebrews 11.1, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. The first week of Advent helps us do what Israel did. God has promised all will be made new. The struggles that you carry, the pain that you feel, God will make it right. And and we express that longing to God and we light a candle of hope because hope relies on trust. Let me just ask you and tell you this. If hope is the fire, if hope is the fire that keeps us going, Trust is the wood that kindles the fire. We have to learn to express our longing to God, to to believe in what we can't yet see, and trust that God will do it. In Romans 15, 13, it says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust Him, 
so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, this is a symbol. Lighting a candle of hope is a symbol. How do you make that practical? Let me tell you in a very practical way. When you see the brokenness in the world, our first tendency is to avoid it, to distract ourselves from it, to blame somebody for it. And I want to tell you, when you see the brokenness in the world, I would encourage you to engage it. When you see suffering in the world, instead of running away from it, say, God, I want that to be better. I want that to be made new. And acknowledge that longing. And and let that longing cultivate in you a hunger for God. Right? We we get distracted from things and and focus away from the, the, the brokenness of the world instead of taking that brokenness and saying, God, fix this, please. How long? And, and then placing our hope in Him to do it. Trust says, it's not my job, it's yours. That's, that's the thing about my dad, right? I can remember riding a ride at Six Flags Over Georgia in Atlanta, Georgia. We, there was this metal ball. I actually have a picture of that. I should have brought that. Uh, to me, it looks very rickety in my mind. I'm sure it was very secure. But you got inside this cage and the crane lifted you up in the air so you could see out over the whole park at Six Flags. And I was literally terrified. I mean, I, I, I remember sitting by my dad and I think I was kind of sitting on my dad, you know. And he said that phrase, he always said to me, Jeff, do you think I would ever take you anywhere that wasn't safe? Now, I, I'm a dad now. I know that that's a bunch of bull. We don't have a clue what we're doing, <laughs> right? But at that moment, when I told him I was scared and acknowledged my longing, and he said to me, I got you, you know what I could do? I could take the responsibility for my safety off my shoulders, and I could put it on his. And lighting that candle says, you know what? The world's broken. It's a mess, God. But instead of sitting and stewing in it, what I'm going to do is take the responsibility off my shoulders and put it on his. And say, I'm hoping and trusting that you will come through. That, that, that just as you came in flesh to be with us, that one day again, you will come into this dark place and make all things new forever. And there will be no more tears, no more death, no more dying. The one who was sitting on the throne, it says in Romans 21.5, says, I am making everything new. That's what we're longing for. Don't hide your longing. The longing actually cultivates that ability to trust and take it off your shoulders and put it on God's. Let's pray. God, we, we live in this world that's dark and a, and a candle doesn't seem to do much good. But I pray that it would be a symbol of what you are to us, that the darkness will not overcome. That you have a plan, that you've, you've, you've made that clear to us by coming in flesh, by living and dying, rising from the dead, by sending your spirit to live inside of us. By promising that you will never leave us or forsake us. And just as, as we, we cry out, how long, O Lord, meet us here. Help us to trust, as that psalm says, in your unfailing love. Give us that trust today and that hope for what is coming in the future. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. as we. My prayer for you this week is Romans 15, 13. I just read it. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This town of hope needs hope more than any place I think I've ever seen. Maybe not more than any place, but it sure needs it. I just know people here, right? We need hope here.
May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit onto everybody around you this week. Amen.